Every now and then I joke that, um, and you people in the second service usually get it more than the first service, that I go a few minutes over on my message. You know, we want to get you out by a certain time. And so I joked that, you know, since it's football season, somebody needs to get a flag, and when I go a little bit over, they need to throw a penalty flag. So um, I don't know. Somebody take that. If I go a little too long today, you can throw. There'll be a penalty. We'll take two minutes, like, off next week's sermon or something like that. So, um, so what we're doing, we started a brand-new series last week that's called Starting Point. And uh, what, what we're going to do with this series is it's sort of if, if you're a person that is just sort of searching, you, you realize that there's something bigger than you, there's got to be something more out there than just, you know, this happened because of nothing. But you're not necessarily convinced that this whole Christianity thing is the right way. You're, you've heard about Jesus, but maybe you've met Christians, maybe you've had some bad experience with some Christians, and you're just not sure about it. You're sort of searching about it. This series is uh, especially designed for you. It's, we're going to go through sort of the basics of who God is and what the starting point is for faith in God, faith through Christ. What, what is the starting point for becoming a Christian? And if you're a person that would call yourself a Christian or a believer, and you have, you know, you've been in the church for years and years and years, this also will be a good series for you to sort of reground you and maybe, maybe change some misconceptions, perhaps that you might have about God and Jesus and the Bible. Um, there are a lot. Most of you are aware. There's a lot of, of division among Christians and different kinds of churches that believe this and believe that. So we're basically going to ask, answer the question. Um, what does it take to become a Christian? What, what does a Christian look like? What does a Christian believe? You know, is there a certain thing I have to do to change the way I dress? What do I have to believe? What do I have to do? And uh, so what, what I decided last week is, because I, I get this certain question a lot, I, I sort of made a starting point to the starting point series, an introduction to the uh, introduction. And because my introductions take too long, it's going to be a two-part introduction now. And uh, then we'll get into the meat of the series more next week. But uh, we're basically, what, what I wanted to do is go through the, the bottom line, the, the fundamentals of what we believe. Because people ask us all the time, what do you guys believe there at Stonebrook anyway? And when Christians ask us, unfortunately, unfortunately, many times when Christians ask me this, and this is an actual question we got, because we, we invite you to ask questions. We want, this, we want church to be more of a, as much of a conversation as it can possibly be. So if you have questions at any time, by the way, while we're, we're teaching, and someone had a question from the first service that I may get to talk about this morning, but you can text that question in anonymously to SB, uh, 415-SB-ROCKS at any time. But this particular question came in, you know, what do you believe? As a church, what do you believe? Um, and why do you believe it? How, how do you know that it's true? And I get this question a lot. When I get it from Christians... It's sort of like they're sizing us up. Okay, do you believe this? Because you're not a real church if you don't believe this. And that's sort of the perception. Uh, you know, do you believe like me? Can we hang out together? Because if we don't believe exactly the same thing, we can't hang out together. And we just sort of think that's nonsense. That uh, there, there's room for differences. There's room for different um, perceptions of things. But what I want to do is quickly, especially for those of you that are, are, are trying out church again, maybe for the first time in a long time, or maybe your first time ever being in a church at all. We just think it's awesome that you're here. And so I want to go real quickly through what we think are the basics of what a Christian believes and talk some about that. And we started last week. 
I don't want to spend too much time reviewing because I do want to get through these. Um, so you can go to stonebrook.tv at any time and you can hear last week's message and, and any of the messages actually on there at any time. So um, what we said at the beginning though is that our, our, uh, we want our beliefs to be something that are very simple. I wanted them to be a very basic thing. Jesus was constantly saying that you need to approach, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, you need to become like a child. If you truly want, because people would ask him, you know, what do I need to believe? What do I need to do? And on multiple occasions, Jesus would actually pull a child up in front of them and said, say basically this. Because the people, the religious people of Jesus' day, the religious leaders had made um, being a God person a very difficult, arduous Uh, You know, lots of rules and regulations, lots of behavior things that you had to do, lots of rules you had to follow, lots of knowledge that you had to, you know, obtain one way or the other. And Jesus came along and those people thought that if you behave a certain way, if you acquire enough knowledge, if you do enough things, there were over 600 laws that they believed that you had to know and integrate into your life. And they believed if you did all those things that God would like you better. And so they were so surprised when Jesus showed up and he didn't want to hang out with them. He went to the people that knew absolutely nothing about God and actually pursued them. Um, so we, we want them to be very basic. We don't believe that there needs to be very intricate wording to this or all kinds of different things. We want it to be just sort of uh, bottom line. And the bottom line at the core of our beliefs, and I don't know if you have that slide there, the, the bottom line is we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe he's the anointed one that should come, the, the son of the living God, and everything else, frankly, is up for discussion. Um, that's, that's the core at the bottom. Somebody says, well, what does Stonebrook believe? Can, do you have that one? It's be toward the beginning there. Sort of real close after that question. It would be a couple slides after where that question is. No, that's not it. We could just wait in awkward silence. Wouldn't that be great? Um, no, it's, it's before any of the beliefs at the beginning. In fact, we could go to stonebrook.tv and I could probably, I'd have to read what they meant. There, welcome anyone, regardless of background or beliefs, we want to be inclusive, not exclusive. Then the next slide right there. At Stonebrook Church, our beliefs are simple but essential. At the core, this is the bottom line. This is non-negotiable. If you decide you want to be a Jesus follower, You don't have to believe this to come to our church, but if you decide to be a Jesus follower, this is the bottom line. We believe that Jesus is the risen Son of God. He's the only way to a relationship with God. There are a lot of other things that we believe differently. In fact, I illustrated in the first service that we have one of our board members that is an advisor to me. He's one of my closest friends. He's in the top three, at least, of people that I love to discuss Scripture with. And we disagree on all kinds of things. But we go together to the same church. We work together for the same cause because at the core we believe that Jesus is the center of everything that we believe. The basic of our beliefs are listed below and we're going to go through them. But remember, this list is merely representative, not exhaustive. First, we believe that God is our creator, that everything including us exists for his purpose. We believe that everything came into being because there's something bigger than us. There's someone bigger than us that made everything. It didn't just happen by chance. Now, there's lots and lots of disagreement among Christians about that. Some people would say the earth's just 6,000 years old. I don't personally believe that. 
Some people would say that the earth is 13.7 billion years old and that God used evolutionary processes to bring everything to pass. Maybe so. Some people would say that the Genesis account is simply an allegory or a poem that describes the general way that God created. Maybe so. I actually have a separate belief about it, and it takes too long to explain it, so it doesn't matter. But at the bottom line, we believe that God created everything and that we exist to please Him. Our next belief is we believe that God reveals Himself. And He revealed Himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus perfectly represents everything that God is. Everything God thinks, everything that God wills, the attitude that God has toward us, what God will do. We believe that Jesus represents God perfectly. God looks like Jesus. Very, very simple concept there. The next belief is that God inspired humans to write Scripture, or the Bible, what we call the Bible. Now, the Bible, you understand, a lot of times we say, that the, we say this all the time, the Bible says, we'll talk a little bit about this next week, the Bible says, frankly, the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible is a library. We view it many times as Christians. We view it as a book that God somehow wrote. We've, we have this opinion, or at least I did growing up. I, I thought that when, um, like Moses wrote a book of the Bible, I thought that he somehow maybe had an earpiece in, and God was saying, okay, Moses, we need to write the Bible again today. So Moses got out and said, go ahead. And that God dictated to Moses... And Moses wrote down exactly what God had in mind and wrote it in his book. So that everything that I read that was in that book was somehow God telling me what he wanted, telling me how to live, telling me what should happen, and that God basically is saying, I approve this message. And then whatever came afterward, everything in that was God dictating to us because people said things like this. That we believe the Bible, from table of contents to maps, every single word is true. Every single word, it's inerrant, and uh, it's absolutely infallible. God gave us this book. Now, we believe that God inspired humans to write the Bible, which is a collection of manuscripts written over a period of about 1,500 years. But it's all kinds of different genres. There's some po poems. There's some history. There's some apocalyptic literature. There's a travel journal. We'll actually talk next week. We'll be reading from a travel journal. Christians call it the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, but it's actually Luke's, who was a doctor, his travel journal, where he documented things that he saw. And people put this into a collection that we call the Bible. But for 350 years, the earliest Christians did not have one. So what did they do? We're going to talk about that next week. But anyway, we believe that God inspired people to write Scripture to help teach, guide, and correct us. As Paul said in Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. But the trouble with the way most Christians have studied and applied the Bible is they've made it all equal. They just pick a scripture from any particular place. You know, they may wake up one morning and plop their Bible open to the book of Psalms. They're thinking about their husband, and they open it, and they put their finger down, and it says, Break their teeth, O God. And they think that's God speaking to them today. Well, is that God's instruction? Probably not. 
And Jesus taught us, and this is why I say it this way, Jesus taught us that the Bible isn't to be read flat. We believe it's all equally inspired, but it's not all equally applicable to our lives. It's not all equally weighty. It doesn't carry the same weight across the whole spectrum. We know this to be the case because Jesus told the religious leaders of the day, because they would tithe, they were very particular to tithe their cinnamon, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. They, they tithed all those different um, herbs. And Jesus said, you should do that, yes. But you have ignored the weightier matters. So here Jesus is saying there's a part in the Old Testament about tithing, but there's some things that are more weighty than that. Jesus said that, the, uh, the pro- that uh, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. But then he said, but what I say is more important than what he says. Okay, so when I read something John the Baptist say, it says, I don't read it with the same weight as when I read what Jesus said. Jesus would quote the Old Testament. He said, you've heard that it's been said an eye for an eye, but I say, love your neighbor, do good to them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So I can't simply go into especially certain parts of the Old Testament and give it the same weight that I give the words of Jesus. We read and interpret everything from the Bible through the lens of who Jesus is. Now, and this isn't my subject today. I would love for it to be my subject. I'd love to talk about this. It, it opened my eyes to who God was when I began to see, oh, Jesus is who God is. But th- this, this happened last night, and I wanted to show you. I have a, sort of a friend of mine. His name is Bruxy. You guys have heard me talk about Bruxy. He pastors a church in Canada, the Meeting House. We've shown a video of, of Bruxy uh, preaching. Bruxy's like, he's still stuck in the 70s. He's an ex-hippie, and he's, but he's a pastor. Bruxy preaches barefooted. It's, really, it's, so, it's so weird to be in his church. But he's an amazing, amazing guy. But he posted on Facebook last night a picture. Bruxy got his very first tattoo. And so here's Bruxy's first tattoo. Can you see what he got on there? Leviticus 19.28. Does anybody know what Leviticus 19.28 says? It says this. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. <laughs> and I said, that has got to be the coolest thing I have ever seen. <laughs> right there. So he gets a tattoo with a scripture that says, don't get tattoos. Now, I get this question all the time. Is it wrong for me to get a tattoo? Well, if all the Bible is equally applicable to all people in all times, Yes. But, like I said last week, there's also a scripture that if your kids, if your teenagers backtalk, if your teenagers sass you, if they don't do what you say, that you are required by the Bible to gather your neighborhood together, get a bunch of rocks together, and kill them with those rocks. Can I get an amen on that one? Because there's another place where we just need to clap. That's a good scripture right there. I say we need to hang that on the wall in every school, in every household. But we don't obey that. So are we being disrespectful to God and disobedient? No. There was a reason for that. But here is, Bruxy said he's going to put another scripture on his other arm. And I just wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about this. And he's not going to put all these scriptures. He's going to put Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 on the other arm. So when people ask him about this, he has something else to show him. And because he doesn't have enough arms, I'm going to add some to it to get to Hebrews 8.13. But this is the new covenant that says, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior. 
far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant or a far better deal, a far better uh, contract, a far better uh, way of interacting with God based on better promises. Now this is, this is something that to me is a little confusing of why we as Christians want to constantly go back to the old when Jesus has brought us the new. Now, I did this in first service and I thought we'd see how this would happen here. Um, does anybody remember like when you had a first car or maybe this is your first car? <laughs> so don't be offended here. Uh, you remember when you first got a car, maybe you drove like a Yugo or a, a Pinto? We had a Pinto driver in the first service. Do we have any Pinto drivers? Yes, I see that hand. Is there any others? Bless your heart. Bless your heart. We'll pray for you. Pinto in the back there. We have a bunch of Pinto recovering Pinto drivers in there. Okay, let's say you're driving that Pinto. And even today, you're driving, and if you're driving a Pinto, we'll, we pray for you. God will eventually bless you, hopefully. Um, but uh, let's say you're driving this Pinto. And I don't know if you've seen this, but Toyota is remaking the Supra. Have you guys seen the new Toyota Supra? Oh my gosh. Or maybe you are more of a a Mopar fan. They're redoing the Challenger. Um, They've redone the Camaro. You got the Corvette. Let's say somebody comes up to you with one of those new Toyota Supra or a brand new Corvette and you're driving the Pinto. Is it any challenge at all to say, you know, do you say, just keep, your, just keep your Supra. This Pinto. This Pinto has worked fine for now. I just think I'll drive the Pinto. Your friends would say, are you nuts? It's a Corvette. Why are you driving the Pinto? So he's offering you a Corvette. You know, this is, I've just, it's been a good car. I don't, who wants to go 200 miles an hour? Really? You know, who needs a chick magnet in their life anyway? You know, that's what the guys think. Why, why would I want to get this car? No, the new is better. But when it comes to God, we want to still go back. So many Christians driving a pinto. Okay, let's go to the next verse. If the first covenant, notice this. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. I'm just asking a question. Is the new covenant, is the writer of Hebrews saying that there is a fault with the old covenant? That's what he's saying. The first, if, if, if it had been faultless, we wouldn't have had to have a new one. I don't really understand what's so hard for us. The new replaces the old. It replaces it. And someone, someone sent this question in. It's a really good question from the first service. that said, why would God make a faulty covenant? If there was a fault with it, why would God make that covenant? It's because the people didn't have the ability at that time because Jesus hadn't come. The people didn't have the ability at that time to have a, enter into a relationship with God. They didn't really know who God was. They had a complete misunderstanding of who God really was. It took Jesus to come and say, no, you've heard this, but really God's like this. You think this, but really, look at me, this is what God really is like. It's not that God was faulty. In fact, it's one of the most loving things when you finally see this about God. You see that God constantly accommodated the way and the the people were so far from God. The people would not accept some things. For example, as soon as God brought the people uh, of Israel, the Jewish people, out of Egypt, he asked them to come. He said, I'm going to come down to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and I want to talk to them. 
God has always wanted, just, just let me talk to him. I don't want to go between. I don't want a mediator. I, I want to go directly to them. And God tried to get them to just come directly to him, and he began to talk to them. And the, the Old Testament says they stopped their ears and begged for him to stop talking to them. And they said to Moses, you go talk to him and tell, him, tell us what he says. We don't want to talk to him. So God accommodated them. All of the laws of the Old Covenant are God accommodating what their culture and what their particular place of their beliefs and the way they were at the time. He accommodated them to keep them close. There are so many things. In fact, Jesus said concerning some things, he said, yeah, the reason God allowed that is because of the hardness of your heart. It's not what God wanted. Keep in mind when you're reading the Old Testament that you may come across something and you think, this is what God wants? Maybe. Maybe not. Because there's some things that Jesus said, that's not really what God wanted to do. But because of the hardness of your heart, he had to allow that in order to keep you close. So he could show you who he was, which culminated in Jesus actually showing up. But anyway, I'm taking too long with that. Uh, it says when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. And it is now out of date and will soon disappear. So what does the writer of the, of the New Testament book of Hebrews, after Jesus has come, this is a Jesus follower, I believe it's the Apostle Paul that's writing here, what does he think of the Old Testament? He says it's obsolete and it's out of date. And that we need to be looking to who Jesus is. Okay, I've got to move on. We live in a broken world, we believe. And our relationship with God has been severed by sin. That all the evil and things that are going on in the world is not the way God intended it. But it is it's because of our sin. But here's, here's the big thing, and this is where we ended last week. Is that God has always pursued people even if they've disobeyed him. This is where we ended. I was taught that sin was so offensive to God that he couldn't even stand to be around people that sinned. In fact, if, if God got into the presence of people who had sinned, that they would be destroyed because of his holiness. Now, I believe God is holy, and I believe God is awesome. But the pattern, starting from the very, very first record of sin with Adam and Eve, is as soon as they disobeyed, God went after them. God pursued them and said, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. God knew that he had sinned. But he, the rest of the Bible, after Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 21, is a story of various people, various times, various activities. But it's the story of God pursuing people who had misunderstood him or who had rebelled against him. God is after you. He's not resisting you. He's not waiting for you to get good enough. He has always been arms open in hot pursuit. And I had a guy message me after first service because I said God's in hot pursuit of you. He said all I could think of was Roscoe on the Dukes of Hazard. He's in hot pursuit. So now every time you think of God in hot pursuit of you, you'll think of the Dukes of Hazard. It's great. Okay, the next belief is God became a man, Jesus Christ. God the Father sent Jesus to earth to live as our example and die as our substitute. We talked just a little bit about this last week, that what, what actually was happening, um, first of all, Jesus came to live, and the way he lived is the way he wants us to live. But when Jesus got onto that cross, it is God displaying to all people for all time exactly how much he loves us. It's Jesus, God in Jesus, God in the body, coming 
to a group of people and doing them nothing but good. Healing them, teaching them to love one another, showing them every single day just exactly how much he loves and cares for them. But yet the religious people and the governmental authorities, the people that were in charge, man that wanted to be in charge, and religious people that wanted things a certain way, they killed him because of it. The cross is God saying, you deserve to be punished. I could, because you're my enemies, because you've rebelled against me, I could vanquish you right now. Which is what they thought the Messiah was going to do to the Romans in the first place. They thought the Messiah would come in, vanquish the Roman occupying army, and restore Israel to its rightful place as a nation of God. But instead Jesus came in and said, no, I want you to love the Romans. I want you to love your enemy. I want you to do good to people that hurt you. Because he taught that, the religious people killed him. It's, when Jesus is on the cross, it's the ultimate display that God is showing, this is just how evil you are. I came to love you and restore you, and you killed me. It's not God necessarily punishing Jesus in our place, and maybe there's an aspect of that to it. But it's God displaying, this is just how much I love you. I, came, I created you. The only reason you're alive is because of me. And you yet are murdering me? And he displays the ugliness, the evil of sin for all people for all time and absorbed it and said, okay, you guys deserve punishment, but instead of killing you, I'm going to die for you. Instead of killing you, I'm going to show you exactly how much I love you. I'm going to take on everything that you've done wrong, even the ultimate ultimate evil of killing the author of life, I accept that sin. I'm becoming that sin. Look at how awful you are. But I absorb it, I accept it. And then he rose from the dead to say, not to come back and say, now you killed me, now I'm going to show you who's boss. Now I'm going to show you how wrong you are. He came back to make sure that you knew, oh, and by the way, you're forgiven. That's what the cross is about. He died as our substitute. The next one, we believe that, I don't know, oh, we regain relationship with God by accepting and trusting that sacrifice that Jesus made. Not by our behaviors, not by anything at all that we can do. Uh, Paul said it in Ephesians this way, that God saved you by his grace when you believed, not when you behaved, when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is the gift from God. It is completely, totally by grace. There is nothing you can ever do. He goes on and says in verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. This is one of the biggest things I think that church in general, that Christians in general, we're, we're missing. We say that it's because of Jesus dying on the cross, but we still act and talk like it's something that we have to do. It's one of the hardest things for me to get. I was raised in a church that believed you had to behave and look and act a certain way and talk a certain way and not, not go to certain places. You certainly didn't want to do a whip or a nay-nay because that's the straight shoot to hell right there. And you don't, you, know, you don't look at anybody else that's doing that. You don't do this and you don't do this and maybe, just maybe, God will like you someday. And I have the hardest time. I'm a, I say I'm a recovering Pharisee because I have the hardest time with this concept that God simply loves me. No questions asked exactly the way I am. He accepts me right now completely by grace. It's really, really hard for me to get a hold of. 
But it's too bad if it's hard for me to get a hold of because that's the way it is. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do. In fact, Jesus' brother James wrote a, a letter to the church and he said, some of you really think you're doing good, but if you don't obey every single one, if you miss it in one case... If you do one thing wrong, you might as well do all of them wrong because in God's eyes it's just the same. It's either perfection or nothing. So basically, give up. That's what Jesus' message was. Here's the standard, and they all went, oh, we can't do it. Jesus went, oh yeah, that's the point. Give up because I'm here to do it for you. Just come into a relationship with me. I will be the one that brings you to God, not you. Okay, i got to move on. They're going to be throwing the penalty flag. Here's another thing that we believe. Jesus actually came back to life and is alive today. I want you to notice all these beliefs are very simple. They're worded very simply. Let's just get to the bottom line of it. it. We think that the, the, the foundation of the Christian faith is not a teaching. It's not a book. It's not anything else but an event. The thing that started Christianity was there was a guy that came to earth named Jesus. He predicted that they were going to kill him, and he predicted that he was going to rise again from the dead, that he was going to come back to life. And I have historical, logical, scientific reasons to believe that that actually happened. Why? Because the Bible says, we'll actually talk about this next week. No, because there are historical documents that we have a better record of than any other human being that ever existed, that I believe by reading those and what happened with the earliest disciples, that there are actually logical, historical reasons to believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and that he came back to life and that he's still alive. And here's, I'm just a, a simple man. Sorry, I'm playing uh, Leonard Skinner in my head right now. I'm just a simple guy that believes if a person predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, pulls it off, I'm going to follow him. <laughs> He's probably who he says he is. So that's the basics. We believe that Jesus actually came back to life. It's a historical event. In fact, uh, in the book of Acts, the very, this is in the very first sermon. This was the basic message of the early church. This is Peter, a guy that hung out with Jesus for three years. This is a guy that just a few weeks, about 50 days before he makes this statement, a middle school girl came up to Peter and said, aren't you a Jesus follower? And he cussed and denied. He said, blankety blank, no, I don't even know who he is. And him and all Jesus' closest followers completely left him because he was about to be killed. They stood and looked. They watched him die. They watched the blood drain out of his body. They hid and locked the door because they were afraid that the Roman authorities and the Pharisaical leaders were coming after them next to make sure that they squashed this rebellion. They were hiding. They were scared. They were afraid for their lives. But 50 days later, he says this to a crowd in the middle of the street of Jerusalem to where we know there were at least 3,000 people present. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this it's not a book we read it's not a bible story we saw him and their lives in fact all of them but one 
gave their lives because they refused to recant that they actually saw that dead man alive. Okay, here's another thing we believe. God's Holy Spirit lives in us as believers. He leads, comforts, teaches, and empowers us with gifts to serve. Jesus said it this way. He said in John 14 that I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another person that will uh, argue your case, another person that will be on your side, just like a lawyer, an advocate, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, who leads you into all truth. He, not in it, he lives with you now and later will be in you. This is one of the uh, unique features of Christianity is we don't serve a God that is far away, that we are worshiping, trying to attain, and trying to get in touch with Him, that we believe our God, first of all, in the person of Jesus, came to earth. And when Jesus left and provided the way of salvation, that when we trust His sacrifice and accept Him, that instead of it just being a business and sort of a formality or a ritual, that God Himself, God Himself actually enters into us the New Testament says that we don't, we don't worship God in a temple, but that our bodies are actually where God lives. Our bodies are the temple. The holiest place in the entire world is the space between me and you. That God is there. It's the unique feature of Christianity. That it's a relationship. It's not just reading a book. It's just not learning to quote certain things or go through a class, wear certain jewelry, do certain rituals. It's that he will actually be there in you everywhere you are. i got to hurry. Every believer, we believe, should be baptized and belong to a local church family. And we've, we've talked about baptism before, but especially this part about belonging. Baptism is a sign that you are publicly declaring, I'm a Jesus follower, but I'm also joining this Jesus family. That's what baptism uh, signifies. People many times... Christians will say, you know, I just think God doesn't care if I go to church and I I can be just as good a Christian not going to church as I can going to church. Now, many of the churches that I've been involved with, sometimes including this one, frankly, there's times where I'm like, you know, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I think I'll try that. Because, now, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you'll just shift your eyes to the left and right of you right now, there are people here. And couldn't we get a lot more done if we didn't have all these people in the way? Don't you, have you ever thought that? You know, you're going through your day and it's like, my workplace would be so much better if I didn't have to deal with people. If I didn't have to work with people, this life would be great because all these people are driving me nuts. But actually, the whole purpose, God himself, that's why we talk about Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is an eternal community. God's whole purpose in life from eternity past God the Father wants to give to the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to give to the Son and the Father. God is a giver. God is a lover. That's how He designed us to be. That's why in the New Testament, there are over 50 times where the phrase one another is used. You cannot obey Jesus fully and if you're not obeying the one another phrases. And the only way to obey the one another phrases is you eventually have to bump into a one another somewhere. So that's why we believe everybody should be involved in a church because there are certain areas that you will never grow in. There are certain things you will never receive from God directly from Him. We are made to live in community. And we believe Jesus is coming back to the earth 
One day. In fact, I'm thinking like Wednesday afternoon at 3.30. What do you think? Could we post that? Let's all get together on a hill and wait for Jesus to come. I have a countdown. No, we don't believe that at all. I don't care how many moons turn red in a row. We don't believe that it's predicting that Jesus is going to come back at a particular time. We do believe that Jesus is coming back to the earth one day. Why do we believe that? Because in Luke's account of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead, Luke said this, After saying this, he, Jesus, was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. This is Jesus' closest followers. Uh, In fact, there was about 500 of them at one point that saw him go up. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday, not a particular day that somebody decides it's going to be, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Will that be where he returns and all of a sudden we are all pulled out of airplanes and cars and there's crashes and there's all kinds of chaos and Nicolas Cage comes along and there's a movie about it? I'm not sure. I don't particularly think so. If it happens that way, great, I'm all for it. But, and we can disagree on those things. But we do believe that Jesus said he's going to return to the earth. And this brings up the last thing. And see, these are very basic things. There's not a lot of them. But we believe that those who follow Jesus will live forever in his eternal kingdom. We talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago that there's, people have different thoughts, for example, on what eternity looks like. Some people would say if you're not a Jesus follower, then there's a punishment for that, and that includes hell. I believe Jesus actually talked about hell. Some people would say that's an eternal torment. Some people believe that it's simply eternally being lost, that a person is cast in the lake of fire and they'll be destroyed and they simply won't exist anymore. I don't know. Some people would say that there was, there's no hell at all. Maybe, maybe, but it seems that Jesus seemed to think that there was a place. However, however, in the early church, the earliest disciples never used the subject of hell as a motivator for people to come into relationship with God in order to be a Christian. They never, in other words, said, do you accept Jesus or do you, do you go to hell? One or the other. There you go. There's my sermon. Turn or burn. Never. Never. It doesn't mean there's not a hell, but their, their message was, Jesus came to show us how God really is, and we have discovered that God really likes us. We've discovered that God really loves us. And the the earliest Christians said things like, it's the love of God that will draw you to change your mind or to repent. And that message changed the entire world. What we do know for sure, one of the most famous scriptures, everybody knows that it's always at the football games on a big sign. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. Uh, What does that mean? Perish, I'm not sure. But if you do believe in him, you'll have eternal life. What exactly that looks like? Here's where I used the example in the first service, and I'm almost done. Somebody probably needs to throw the flag. Throw the flag. Somebody, you've got to throw it, though. There you go. There's a penalty. We'll try to take 30 seconds off of next week's message. Dave Gridley said we need to have a red flag, so if there's something you want to you know, disagree, we want to, I want to challenge you on that one. Let's get the replay. We'll send this you know, back for review. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, in the first service, 
one of our board members, his name is Paul, he's, he's an older gentleman, just one of my favorite guys in the world to hang around with, he believes that we will spend eternity in heaven and that we will not have our body, that we will simply be spirits. He believes that the spiritual is much more important than the natural, and so we will live somewhere. We don't know where heaven is necessarily, but we will, after we die, we'll just live there forever. Okay? I think Paul is just as wrong as he possibly can be. I think through all eternity, anytime you see Paul, you should remind him, Mark was right. I don't know what to do for you, Paul. Mark was right. It seems to me that Jesus teaches that he's going to return to the earth and that those that have died will be resurrected and that we will live for eternity with Jesus in charge of the earth. Forget this election every four years. My goodness, Jesus will just be in charge. Now, I think that deserves a small hand right there. Yeah. When, when you clap, I actually feel like I'm running for some type of office. And I promise that Jesus will make your lives better. You know, something like that. But see, what that looks like, Paul and I, we don't have to separate and go different places. We can discuss it. But if Paul's right, I don't care. If I'm right, I don't care. All I care about is Jesus said that if I will follow him wherever he is, because Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back. That wherever I am, you can be there too. That's all I care about. The guy that represents the love of Almighty God that heals, that restores, that accepts me just the way I am and teaches me how to change and makes me a better person, that created everything absolutely perfect in the beginning, he wants me to be wherever he is. I don't care. Jupiter, Saturn, I don't care. I want to be there. And that's what we believe. We don't want to argue about the details. But we believe if you accept Jesus, you will live forever with him wherever he is. So, I've went... Oh my goodness, you don't want to know how long I've went over. I'm going to pray for us. And then next week we're going to continue with this starting point message. It's going to be, uh, I'm really looking forward to this series. If you have a friend that maybe doesn't uh, know Jesus yet, this is a great series to bring him to. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this group of people. I just, I just love them. And I thank you that you are absolutely crazy about them. I ask you just this week, Lord, just to, to hug them to show them at, at some point during the week that you just think that they're amazing and that you are, you're in hot pursuit of them, Lord. Uh, help us to know you more. Help us to be more like you and open our hearts and our minds to change, to be more like you as we go through this series. We love you, sir. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. Have a uh, great rest of Sunday and a good week. See you next Sunday.